love and congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It used to be that a person's faith was closely tied to some outward form of religion. Whether you were Jewish, whether you were Christian, Jewish, or Muslim, you would attend church, a synagogue, or a mosque. And today, there is a significant section of our population that describes itself as spiritual, but who live out their spirituality privately. They may spend time in nature for reflection, or meditate, or practice solitude, or pray, or practice yoga. What this shows is that while many in our community do not wish to attend a religious service, many are seeking some kind of relationship with God. The search for communion with God is not new. We were created as worshiping beings. Everyone worships someone or something. It might be money or power or glory. A man was created to long for something more meaningful than that. God has put eternity into our souls. He has put within us a desire for fellowship with him. That's why non-religious people seek out some kind of spirituality in their lives. It's why we are never truly satisfied unless we find our comfort and joy in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us much about our communion with God. It explains that though we were made for such fellowship with God, we lost it in the fall into sin. The Bible teaches how God reached out into this world to open the way for his people to be restored to communion with him. Our text deals with a long list of sacrifices that the Lord required from his people. Reading it, we might think, what a boring chapter. Yet our text helps us to see how we are able to live in intimate relationship with God. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. Through various sacrifices, the Lord opens a way for his people to live in communion with him. We'll consider the sacrifices required, the atonement made, and the communion offered. In Numbers 27, it appeared that Israel was about to enter the promised land. The Lord gave instructions about how the daughters of Zelophehad were to be given their father's inheritance. The Lord told Moses that he was about to die, and he commanded him to ordain Joshua as the new leader in Israel. Joshua was appointed as leader to take over from Moses. Now we expect to see Israel on the move under a new leader. We expect them to enter the land promised them as their inheritance. And yet instead, we get this long list of sacrifices that the Lord commanded Israel to offer to him. The Lord told Moses, command the people of Israel and say to them, my offering, my food for my, off for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. 
The sacrifices listed in Numbers 28 and 29 are the Lord's offerings, those that were wholly devoted to him. The offerings were whole burnt offerings that were laid on the fire and burnt up. The point is repeatedly stressed that the scent of these offerings went up to the Lord as a pleasing aroma to him. It should be noted that the sacrifices presented were to be offered by the people. In other parts of the Bible, we read about the king providing sacrifices to offer on the altar. But our text stresses that the Lord required these offerings from his people. In verse 2 of our text, the Lord tells Moses to command the people of Israel, My offerings you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. The next verse says, This is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord. The people of Israel were required to provide all the regular burnt offerings commanded in Numbers 28 and 29. The various animals that were offered as burnt offerings were offered along with the appropriate grain and drink offerings, along with lambs and bulls and rams and goats. The people offered up flour mixed with oil, what was needed to make bread, as well as wine. It shows that the sacrifice was intended to be a symbolic, balanced meal. These sacrifices were thus a kind of communal meal shared with the Lord, a celebration of communion between the Lord and his people. By presenting these sacrifices to the Lord, God's people indicated their desire to live in close fellowship with the Lord. Israel was commanded to offer a morning and evening sacrifice every day. They were required to offer two male lambs a year old, one in the morning and the other at twilight, along with some fine flour, some olive oil, and some fine wine. In Israel, that was how every day begins and how every day ends. This is what the Bible calls the regular burnt offering, which was ordained at Mount Sinai. Just think about that practice, beloved. Every day, the life of the tabernacle began with a whole burnt offering of a lamb. It was offered on the altar on a bed of coals. It would take hours for the offering to burn up. There was a near continual column of smoke going up from the altar. At that time, Israel was camped around the tabernacle with three tribes on each side. They would see the smoke and smell the aroma of burnt flesh. Every night as the sun was about to go down, another lamb was offered in the same way. Why? What's the point of this ritual? By offering the Lord a sacrificial meal, the Israelites were obeying God's command to offer these sacrifices. The Lord had taught his people what was required for them to live in communion with him. Yet the offering of these sacrifices was more than just a ritual. It was an act of worship. It taught God's people 
to begin each day with the worship of God and to end each day with his worship. Why worship the Lord in this way every morning and every night? Because the Lord was Israel's God who gave them his gifts and blessings every day. All the years they were in the wilderness, God provided for them in miraculous ways. Every morning they received manna from heaven. That continued until the time when they entered the promised land. The Lord provided them with water to drink. He protected them from their enemies. Since the Lord provided so richly for his people, he wanted them to show their thankfulness to him. But there's more. The Lord wanted a living relationship with his people. He wanted them to live in close communion with him. Fellowship requires interaction. By requiring a morning and evening sacrifice, the Lord taught his people that their whole lives were to be centered on him. These daily sacrifices were foundational for the life of God's people. They showed the people that daily life is to be lived with God. It's very instructive for us today. For the Lord also desires us to live life in close fellowship with him. He wants us to acknowledge that he is the fount of all blessings, that all good things come from his fatherly hand. The Lord wants us to trust and depend on him for everything that we need. Do we do that, beloved? It's true that the Lord no longer requires us to offer whole burnt offerings as a pleasing aroma to him. But he does want us to worship him each day. A few times already we've mentioned that the smoke of the burnt offering went up into heaven as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Perhaps an example will help us to understand what is meant you know that smell that comes off your barbecue when you light it up and it turns hot? You might not even have meat on the barbecue yet, but the residual fat sizzling sends off this pleasing smell that makes you look forward to dinner. And when you actually cook meat, the smell can be heavenly. The Bible compares the sweet smell of the offerings that went up to God to prayer. In Psalm 141, David says, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. And then he asks that his prayer be counted as incense before God and as the evening sacrifice. In the New Testament, in Revelation 5, the prayers of the saints are compared to golden bowls of incense offered to God. Just as the Lord required morning and evening sacrifices from his people Israel, so he wants us to come to him in prayer at the beginning and at the end of each day. 
How do you start each day, beloved? Do you race off to work in the morning without even giving the Lord a passing nod? Do you crash into bed at night and fall asleep without thanking God for his blessings and asking him for his grace? When we talk about worship in our churches, we most often think about what happens on Sunday when we gather together to glorify God and hear his word. But are we just Sunday Christians? Or do we see that all of life is to be lived in the service of God? If the first time that you read the Bible and pray is in the evening around the dinner table, what does that say about your trust in the Lord? You've gotten up, you've done your daily tasks without asking for the Lord's care and blessing. Don't you think you need his help, his guidance and direction? Do you fall asleep at night without praying? Doesn't that display an arrogant heart? Don't you have sins to confess and repent of? Don't you require God's keeping through the night? The morning and evening sacrifice set a pattern for the Israelites' worship, for their communion with God. They were taught to start and end the day with God. It's important for us to do the same if we want to live our lives in close communion with the Lord. Besides the morning and evening sacrifices, the Lord specifies other sacrifices that his people are required to make. On the Sabbath day, the requirements for worship were doubled. Twice as many lambs and twice as much flour and wine and oil. It shows that God not only claims our days, he also claims our weeks. He required his people to make a special effort on the Sabbath day. Because it was a special day, additional sacrifices were to be made. This was to be a day devoted to God's worship. Raises the question, do we devote the Lord's day to his service? Or do we allow work and leisure and recreation to rob the Lord of the glory due to his name? On top of that, there are special additional sacrifices every month. On the first day of each month, at the time of the new moon, the Israelites were commanded to offer two bulls, one ram, and seven male lambs a year old, along with their appropriate offerings of flour, oil, and wine. It shows that God also claims the months. The surrounding nations often celebrated new moon festivals at which they presented their offerings to their gods. And the Lord teaches his people that their worship was to be devoted to him alone. Numbers 28 and 29 detail how the Israelites were also to celebrate their special feasts. These feasts included the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. Each of these feasts required additional sacrifices of whole burnt offerings to the Lord. 
There's a specific message that comes through in all of this. It is that all of life is to be lived in the service of God. We tend to separate time into boxes. Time for work or school. Time for eating and sleeping. Time for family. And most importantly, time for me. But beloved, our text teaches that all of life belongs to the Lord. It teaches that we are to worship and serve him with our whole life. We cannot compartmentalize life into work time and family time and my time. The listing of the sacrifices in our text teaches us that all of life is to be lived in the service of God. The way that you do your work should be in service to God. Your interactions in family life should be pleasing to God. What you do for leisure and entertainment should be God-glorifying. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We're dealing with how through various sacrifices the Lord opens the way for his people to live in communion with him. In our second point, we'll consider the atonement made. Our text details the sacrifices and offerings that the Lord demanded from his people throughout the year. But why were all these burnt offerings required? What did they symbolize? Our text doesn't say much about that. But the history of God's people Israel makes clear what the purpose of the burnt offering was. For burnt offerings were offered to the Lord from the earliest days of history. Genesis 8 records how Noah and his family were saved from the flood when the Lord destroyed man because of the wickedness on the earth. When he came out of the ark, Noah built an altar and he took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered them as burnt offerings to the Lord. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and he promised never to destroy the earth again by means of a flood. Although the Lord specifically states that the intent of man's heart was still evil, he established his covenant with Noah and his family after his presentation of burnt offerings. Thus the Israelites learned that the burnt offering was a way of satisfying God's wrath and of obtaining his favor. There's a special second event in Israel's history where a burnt offering was offered to the Lord. In Genesis 22, we read of how the Lord required Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Because of his faith in God, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son. In God's grace, he stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son, and he provided a ram in his place. From this, the Israelites would have learned that in the burnt offering, the sacrificial animal died in the place of man. Isaac did not die because God provided an animal in his place. Thus, burnt offerings could serve as a substitute to make atonement for a person's sins. 
The location of the altar gives us a further hint about why sacrifices like the burnt offering were required. The altar was the first thing an Israelite encountered when he entered through the gateway in the courtyard of the tabernacle. It was located between the gateway and the door of the tabernacle itself. It stood between an Israelite and his God. The point is that the sacrifices offered on the altar enabled a worshiper to draw near to God. Without the altar, without the sacrificial system, the Israelites could not have dwelt in communion with the Lord. Here the need for sacrifices comes into focus. It's our sins that separate us from God. Before the fall into sin, Adam and Eve lived with God in paradise. You never read about them offering sacrifices to God there. At that point in time, there was no need for blood to be shed. Yet with the fall into sin and the corruption of man, the perfect communion between God and man broke down. Yet God, in his grace, provided a way for, a pe- for his people to approach him. He allowed his people to present sacrifices and so be restored in a living relationship with him. The cost for communion with God was not cheap. In Numbers 28 and 29, the Lord makes great demands of his people. There were daily, weekly, and monthly sacrifices. On top of that, God required many extra sacrifices at the time of the feast days and the special convocations held each year. If you add up the yearly sacrifices God required from his people, they included 1,093 lambs, 113 bulls, 37 rams, and 30 goats, along with all the associated grain and drink offerings. That does not include the free will offerings that people could bring out of thankfulness to the Lord, or the offerings that they brought in fulfillment of vows. It also does not include the purification or the sin offerings required to atone for specific sins. We see that communion with the living God is a costly affair. These sacrifices highlight a basic human need. All these animals were offered as substitutes for God's people. By means of these sacrifices, the Lord was teaching his people a lesson. He was saying, this is what you deserve, my people. Because of your sins against me, you deserve nothing less than total destruction. But I will accept this lamb in your place as your substitute. Because I dearly want to live in communion with my people. I want you to be in a living relationship of trust with me. The idea of a sacrifice being offered in our place is what the Bible calls atonement. To be made one with God, to be reconciled with him, requires payment. Today we often have the idea that we can sort things out with God by saying sorry Saying sorry for our sins, being repentant, is very important. 
or it doesn't take away the need for payment. Just imagine that someone smashes into your car. The other driver gets out and apologizes profusely. He keeps saying, I'm sorry. Well, that's nice. But him being sorry doesn't fix the damage to your car. Someone has to pay to get it fixed. In the same way, someone has to pay for our broken relationship with God. In the Old Testament, God required the blood of animals to pay for sins. Each year, rivers of blood were shed to atone for the sins of God's people. Israel's sacrificial system conveyed a strong message. It taught that the sacrifices were never enough. Every day, every week, every month, they needed to be offered again. Why? To make Israel yearn for the day when a perfect sacrifice would be made for sins. Isaiah predicted that the suffering servant of the Lord would be that offering. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And on him the Lord laid the iniquities of us all. John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was willing to offer himself totally to God, to give his body and blood as a sacrifice for our sins. We know the suffering Jesus underwent on the cross. He bore the wrath of God to deliver us from our sins, to restore us to communion with God. It is in him and through him that we receive forgiveness for our sins and that we may share in life with God now and forevermore. It brings us to our final point. You know, we'll consider the communion offered. God required his people to offer various burnt offerings to make payment for their sins. In this way, the Lord opened the way for his people to live in communion with him. It's the whole point of Numbers 28 and 29. God provides the means necessary so his people could live in fellowship with him. We know that Jesus suffered and died to reconcile us to God. But the question is, do we want communion with God? Do we want to live in close fellowship with him? In Christ, God has opened the way for us. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How do we come to God? By truly believing that Jesus is our mediator, that he suffered and died to pay for our sins, that he rose from the dead to grant us new life in him. Along with faith in Christ, 
God now calls us to devote our hearts and our lives to him. In Romans 12, 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We're no longer called to present animal sacrifices on the altar as whole burnt offerings to God. Instead, God wants us to devote our whole life to Him, to love Him with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. God's grace in Christ is a free gift. Yet sharing in communion with God still comes at a high cost. You remember the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord taught him that he needed to sell everything he owned and give it to the poor and come, follow him. The young man went away sad because the cost of communion was too high for him. He didn't become a follower of Jesus because he found the cost of commitment too much. Now, the point of the story is not that we need to go out and sell all we have and give the proceeds to the poor to be accepted as Jesus' disciples. The point is that Jesus needs to have a preeminent place in our lives. He needs to be number one. God has opened the way for us to share in communion with him. Out of thankfulness for his redeeming grace, he expects us to love and serve him in our daily lives. God expects us to be obedient to his commandments to deny our own will and do what pleases him, to turn away from sinful pleasures so that we may glorify him in all we say and do. Beloved, there are many in society today who are searching for God. They claim some kind of spirituality, but they don't know Jesus Christ and are not living in fellowship with the living God. There are some who know the Lord, but who refuse to follow him. They have other priorities in life. They're trying to find their satisfaction in what this life offers. They think that happiness comes from doing what they want, even if it's against what God teaches in his word. So what about you? Does the Lord have a central place in your heart and life? Do you begin and end the day with him by reading your Bible and calling on him in prayer? Do you enjoy close fellowship with God by meditating on his word, by sharing your heart with him when you pray? Do you devote your time your talents and treasure to the Lord. Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to live in communion with our Father in heaven. It's in the Lord alone that we find comfort, peace, joy, and hope. Seek your life in the Lord Jesus Christ 
and you will enjoy communion with God now and forevermore. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing together from Psalm 116, stanzas 5, 9, and 10.